You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Yeah, don't it sound so epic? Horns are screaming, I ain't the one you want to mess with. Use the joke, I ain't the one you want to jest with. The battle's coming, you only got a few seconds to run. Yeah. All right, welcome to this week's edition of Matt Minnick's Bengals Chalk Talk here on Orange and Black Insider. Uh, today, I have got a great guest, uh, retired Director of Research and Development for the Green Bay Packers, Mike Ayers. How are you doing today, Mr. Ayers? Doing fantastic, Matt. All right, great. Well, I'm, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, first off, uh, I'm... We're going to have to ask for the uh, you know the abbreviated version because I'm sure director of research and development for an NFL team uh, involves a lot. But uh, just a, a real quick breakdown: what uh, you know, what type of work were you doing for the Packers uh, on you know on an everyday basis? Well, essentially, my job was to incorporate a scientific viewpoint into football operations, and what that entailed is just simply analyzing data, trying to find out if there were any significant trends in the information, and then using that, getting that information into the hands of our decision makers in whatever context, you know, play callers, uh, scouts, coaches, players, whatever, so that essentially it would improve the quality of the decisions they made to help our organization create success. All right, and so I think right now we're kind of in uh, in a big phase, kind of the, I don't want to say the dawn of analytics in the NFL, uh, but, you know, analytics has become a, becoming a, a much more, uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to say a bigger part of, of the NFL because I, I think it's always been a pretty big part of the NFL, but I think it's a lot more out there. Uh, I think more people are aware of it and uh, and can kind of be a little bit more critical of decisions based on research that's out there and, and known, uh, you know, from, from, uh, from different avenues, uh, different organizations that are out there. So, um, so you're, you're kind of, uh, on the, on the forefront of that in the NFL before the rest of us even, even knew what, we, what that was. That, that what I'm getting from you? That's correct. Basically I was hired by the Vikings back in 1985 to be a director of research and development and again, I was actually the third person that the Vikings hired. I had two predecessors that essentially came in the building in the early 80s. I joined them in the mid-80s. And, you know, analytics in one form or another has been around a long time simply because it had different names. You know, obviously I was uh-huh. a research director. And even when I was a player, you know, way back in the 70s, we always talked about tendencies and probabilities and game plan, you know, you could always kind of play a hunch if you watched a mm-hmm. lot. Of, and I'm old enough to where I could even say when you were watching film rather than watching video. But you would see things, you know, and it's the most fundamental thing in human behavior. And that is 
whatever creates success is generally going to be replicated in future situations. So, you know, football is a great team to analyze because it's, and here's a great soundbite for you. Football is a game of dependent decisions. In other words, almost every decision that's made in the course of a game or in the course of a draft choice or whatever essentially is triggered by events that precede it. So if you can identify the chain, you can probably often predict what's going to occur next, and it works out really well. As a matter of fact, there's only one true independent decision in an entire game. You want to take a guess what it is? The coin toss. Yeah, the coin toss. (laughs) From the time the coin is tossed, every decision following that is actually a dependent decision. And we used to analyze coin tosses, believe it or not, because we were talking, you know, some teams want to defer, some teams want to take the ball. Uh, It varies whether you're home or on the road. It varies by environmental situations and so forth. So, again, you know, what analytics really is, it's a new word that basically describes the old word tendencies and probability. And all you're trying to do is use what's occurred previously to try to help you determine what's going to occur next. Absolutely. And anybody uh, anybody coaching at any level has uh, uh, been breaking down tendencies for years. So That's right. um, Now, the uh, the Packers uh, are, are noted uh, and for, for being similar to the Bengals, uh, in the way that they approach team building uh, and, you know, being about building through the draft and, and drafting players uh, who, you know, they ultimately look to, to bring in for a second contract. Um, so that is, that is something that when the Bengals have had some bad years and, um, you know, and had some bad drafts, uh, it, it, which is, you know, obviously related there, uh, that people have been critical of. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what the, the – connection is between the draft, free agency, and, and trades uh, and, and overall thought process of, of how to uh, build a team? Sure. Well, again, when I was with the Packers, we were a very, much more so even than they are now, a very college draft reliant team. And our reasoning for that was primarily twofold. Number one, we felt more than anything we were in the business of trying to create a culture And the best way to create a culture is to try to create stability. And the best way to create stability is with the college draft. Because essentially, when you draft a player or you sign a college free agent, you essentially retain the rights on that player for the first four years of their career, or you have the option for the first five years if it's a first-round draft pick. So it gives you time to essentially develop talent, And then the second reason why it becomes such a good thing is, number one, you want to create your culture. The best way to do that is having the same players there regularly. But secondly, it's also a very economical way to build a team because, again, you retain exclusivity on the players. Players in their initial contract and even many times in their second contract are, you know, fairly reasonably priced relative to the cap The problem is when you go into unrestricted free agency and pro-free agency is you're bidding against usually a nucleus of maybe a dozen other teams that are trying to acquire the same player, and so you're subject to the laws of supply and demand. It drives the salary upwards that you can 
use pro free agency to solve a need on your roster. But the problem is you're almost always going to wind up paying more than if you were able to draft and develop to try to fill the same need. And so it's just it just made economic sense because it allows you greater flexibility to re-sign the players you drafted. If you got the original guys and guessed, you know, if you guessed right and sign them to their second contract, basically you've created even more stability within your franchise. And we felt it was just the best way to build a team. We occasionally went into pro free agency to fill, you know, glaring immediate needs. And the Packers have gotten more aggressive in the last couple of years. But I really believe the heart of it all is the culture you create in your locker room. And the best way to create stability and culture is with the college draft. Would you say that, uh, you know, from a front office standpoint, you know, particularly the GM, um, to, to build a team like that, do you have to have a lot of, let's say, honesty, like being honest with yourself and you know, real you know, truthful evaluation, like, hey, I want this guy to be successful. I want to think that we made the right choice in this guy. Uh, and then to be able to to be able to look at the guy four years later and be like, no, nah, this isn't a guy we're giving a second contract to. I mean, is that something you have to kind of put your ego aside a little bit uh, and oh, yeah. you know, face the facts on those things? Well, honesty is a huge part of success probably in any organization because, you, you know, you need to essentially keep your finger on the pulse of reality. And I agree. You know, I mean, one of the things that we did as part of our culture is we had a relatively – relative to the other NFL teams, year in and year out, we were one of the youngest teams in the league in terms of the players on our roster. And we really – believed heavily in not just the draft, but college free agency. Because one of the things that we did to help recruit college free agents to the Packers is simply show them the numbers on our roster. And that is every year we felt we were going to wind up keeping four or five college free agents, guys that never got drafted, but we were going to seriously evaluate. And in some cases, we kept them instead of keeping draft choices. Because at the end of the day, the culture we wanted to create is the best 53 players are on your football team. And that even to a degree transcends positions because we did not position differentiate our roster. We had years where we kept three fullbacks. We had a year where we kept five tight ends because essentially we were trying to fill all the roles to win a game and we felt by keeping those people, it simply gave us the best chance to win. Yeah, I, I think there's probably divisions in the NFL right now that don't have three fullbacks. Uh, <laughs> but, right. no, but, 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 well, but I get your point. Because, uh... again, you know, we're <laughs> talking way back now. We're going to – Oh, absolutely. I think it was the 2000 – I believe it was our 2006 roster that might have had the three fullbacks. But anyways. Yeah, yeah. And, and Game changes uh, fast. The the Larry Centers and Brian Mitchell types survived, but uh, you're not finding very many Moose Johnsons and Tom Rathens anymore. You know, everything <laughs> is a trend, right? It ebbs and flows. Oh, yeah. And the new trend, based on how the 49ers use the fullback position, is all of a sudden it may come into a renaissance. And people decide, yeah, geez, you know, your fullback probably would 
do you more good on a roster than maybe a fourth tight end or maybe even a third tight end? Sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, now getting into the draft is obviously that's the thing that's most pressing on, on people's minds right now. And uh, when, how do you, how exactly do you put together a draft board? And, and, I, and again, I know we're not going to be able to get into all the details uh, t- uh, today, but you know, kind of what, what's the basic uh, format and setup uh, of, a, of a draft board? Sure. Well, a draft board essentially is a table or a matrix that simply consists of columns and rows, right? And in the case of our draft board, it consisted of eight large rows where each row contained multiple players or could potentially contain multiple players. And there was a row for each round of the draft, and then there was a row for college free agents that we felt had a chance to make our roster and could fit into our system. So row one is round one, right? And then essentially the most upper-tier players in the entire draft class sit at the very top of the row. And that was devoted to guys capable of controlling a game or projected to become very, very dominant players. And then, you know, it fell in the line behind them. Then there was a clear demarcation of players that were draftable in round two. And this was a consensus grade based on the entire personnel and coaching staff and medical staff, too. I don't want to undersell them because basically they durability becomes a huge factor in all this as well. But, you know, we'd have a series of draft meetings. There would be a consensus. Um, it all started with a regional or area scout that would present a guy. They would show highlight video, and they would go into the process of discussing exactly how and where he would fit into our roster, which brings in the second part of the draft, what are the columns? The columns on the matrix are all the different positions in our system. So you got the obvious ones like the quarterback and the fullback and, you know, tight end, wide receiver and so forth. And the same thing on defense, your specialist, your long snapper, your punter and so forth. And uh, maybe if you've got something unique to your system, you know, because at one time uh, this transcends actually even the Ted Thompson era. But when I first came to the Packers, one of the things we did is we essentially had a hybrid defensive player that was part lineman, part linebacker. And he was given, it actually comes from the old San Francisco 49er system. He was called the elephant, right? And uh, it was a guy that could play in coverage or rush the passer. And he had a real unique role. We moved him around the field and everything. Well, anyways, that becomes one of your columns is guys that you think project into that. And then based on the guys that you project on that position, if you feel a guy is worthy of maybe a top five pick, he sits way up at the top of the list on the board for his position because he's on the first row. And if you feel he was worthy maybe of a pick in the 20s, he sits down lower on that first row so that you have him graded within the round as well as within the position. And so you've got a matrix. And literally, one of the things they used to joke about at the personnel staff is you do your research and the board tells you whom the best player to draft is when you come around on the rotation. But imagine in your mind, if you will, a matrix of rows and columns. 
where the rows are simply the rounds of the draft and college free agency, and the columns are all the positions that exist within your system of offense, defense, and special teams. And uh, one of the things, again, that makes the matrix kind of unique is a lot of times in a given draft class, in a given position, the round will be completely empty. In other words, and based on the evaluation of the personnel staff, as they're looking at, let's say, um, outside linebackers. Well, that's mm-hmm. actually a pretty generic position. Let's get real specific. Let's say nickel inside slot corner, right? Perhaps okay. there won't be anybody in the fourth round, right? Because basically they'll feel there'll be a big drop-off in talent in a certain area, and, you know, I'd say there'll be blank spots. The other point is, you know, there's 32 picks in the first round, but I remember a lot of draft boards where our personnel staff would only rate, say, maybe 24 or 25 players as being essentially worthy of a first-round pick. So that tells you a little bit about how subjective the draft is, too, because different teams see players through different lenses. Each system mm-hmm. and each team is unique in its own way that they're going about trying to win a game. But you got the matrix, and if you build the board correctly, essentially when your turn comes up on the draft board, the matrix tells you what's probably the best player and the best fit for your team. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So if you're in that situation and, and it's coming around and, you know, let's say as the, the Packers often do and are this year, uh, you're picking towards the end of the first round and uh, you don't have anybody on your board uh, that you've evaluated as a first-round talent. Um, is, is that a time when you, you know, believe the best value is to trade out of the roll round or, or, how do you, or do you still just take the best player on your board? Well, you do it either way, you know. Number one, if there's a gap there, obviously it's advantageous to trade and acquire more picks for later in the draft, right? But if you can't find a trade partner, you know, I guess you could just sit tight and let somebody pick ahead of you, which actually has happened a couple times in the draft. But Mm -hmm. you use it on, again, the board will tell you the best player available at that time and that pick by, you know, for, by position. And, 
you, you know, if you take the – the board is rarely missed in the time that I was around. But it answered your question, yes. We often traded down when there was a gap in the board to acquire multiple picks. And you and, do that because you have a lot of confidence in your staff's ability to evaluate the class. You know, conversely, uh, if you, you've got, you know, four or five guys there uh, that you think are, are worthy of a pick um, at that slot, are, are you thinking I'm going to take the one who's top, even though there might not be that much difference, or, or is that a situation where you're, you're trying to tra- trade down three slots and get some value too? It becomes very intuitive, you know, because okay. essentially it's nice to say it's a matrix. It's, it's nice to essentially say we want to get value. It's nice to use all the great buzzwords. But at the <laughs> end of the day, it's about acquiring players that are going to help you win. And so, you know, it becomes a judgment call or an intuitive call, I think, where you try to decide, you know, the value. And I'll give you a really good example. Right. Basically, we analyzed a lot of trades and and analyzing trades was actually a part of my job is uh, obviously we had trade charts. We had other systems of evaluation that we use to try to determine how players when and how they were drafted. You know, did they live up to their expectation? And we evaluated specifically just trades. And we found that essentially one trade out of three was what we called an imbalanced trade. In other words, the team that traded up or the team that traded down got essentially tremendous value, right? And I can mm-hmm. I can give you two specific stories, right? And they both turned out well for the Packers, so this is kind of a bias. <laughs> but right. essentially, uh, we had Clay Matthews rated very highly as a pass rusher, as a player, really because we felt he could do a lot of things well. But obviously as an edge pass rusher, and that's a hard position to fill on a roster. And uh, essentially the Packers started trying to trade up to get him because they figured in order to get him, he was going to be vulnerable after any time after slot 17 in the selection numbers. So we started trying to trade up at 17 to pick him up. And we couldn't find a partner. People at 17 had a guy they wanted. They didn't want to trade out. Then the same thing happens at slot 18. Same thing happens at slot 19. Then we started getting worried that somebody's going to trade up because they knew we had a specific player in mind, et cetera, et cetera. The whole thing unfolds. Mm-hmm. We wind up taking him in the early 20s, and we were, believe it or not, at the time, we were heavily criticized by NFL Network and ESPN because they thought we drastically overpaid to get him, and we had because we had him rated as one of the top 15 players in that draft class. But, you know, as Ted Thompson said when he was addressing the media and when he was addressing the room, if we felt he was good enough to trade up to slot 17 for, and we wound up essentially, you know, overpaying to get him at 20, I can't remember if it was 21, 22, or 23, but it was in the early 20s. The whole point was, if we felt he was good enough for the teens, then overpaying for him in the 20s, he still was a great value. And he became a great player. So it worked out and worked out really well. And, you know, we had another situation where we're coming around and uh, we have a player that we really liked, all right? And all of a sudden, out of the blue, we have another team call us and the team's going to remain nameless. 
but they offered us an absolute boatload of picks to acquire because they had a specific player they wanted. They wanted to trade up to Giddy and obviously wanted to trade up very badly to the point that they essentially were offering us on a draft chart about 600 points greater on a 3,000-point scale than the pick was actually worth, right? So we had a chance. In effect, if this is a blackjack game, it's a chance to double down, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. the general manager passed, right, because he said, we really like the player that's on our board. It's a great deal. You know, all of our analytics numbers tell us that we should go ahead and make the deal because it's going to be advantageous to us. But right now we're in the business of trying to acquire players. We have a player we really like. We took him. And uh, I'm not going to let the player rename this, but the player turned out to be a tremendous success. And, you know, had we traded down and not had him in our locker room, it would have been really difficult to believe that we would have gotten the same value by taking the boatload of picks. Yeah, so so when you have that uh, that player, um, you know, targeted and and uh, identified, you know, that's a player that's going to make a difference for you, uh, even even if it doesn't seem to be, you know, correct value wise, you've got to do what you've got to do to get that guy. Yeah, Basically. go get him. Yep. Right, because at the end of the day, like I say, it isn't about charts and it isn't about selection numbers and all those things. It's about improving your football team, and if you really believe that you've got a player on your board that's going to make a significant positive difference, by all means, bring them in. Gosh, you know. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of things I'd like to touch on with, with positions. You think about, you know, different positions and, um, you know, how it's broken down differently, differently than we think of. Um, you know, obviously nobody sitting talking about the draft and the Internet is talking about the best elephant in the draft. Uh, but, uh, when, when you're looking at it in, the, in that way, uh, do you ever slot players into multiple roles? Uh, you know, for, for instance, you mentioned a nickel corner before, you know, let's say that you had a guy and you think his best position is, is nickel corner. And maybe, maybe you slot him as a fourth round pick as a nickel corner and a fifth or sixth round pick as an outside corner. Um, but now, you know, you know, now, as you go through the draft, maybe you got a, a nickel corner before you even got to him. You're not going to take two nickel corners, but maybe you'd want an outside guy. You know, do, do you cross-evaluate and look at guys in multiple roles in that sort of way? You try to acquire, and, and I can hear Ted Thompson telling the entire room this over and over again. You try to acquire the best football players they can you can find, right? And... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, regard and believe it or not, this, this is probably going to shock your audience. But regardless of position, because like I say, we entered seasons thin at some positions and really deep at others. But it always evened itself out by the time we got into October. You know, because obviously it's a game of attrition. You're never going to be able to predict who you're going to lose, and you know you have disaster lists and bring guys in on waiver wires and everything else. So you try to use every avenue possible to build a good football team. But regardless of position, if you have a chance to pick up a guy who's a great player and a great locker room presence, because, again, I'm going back to the culture again. You know, 
You want somebody yeah. that's going to essentially be positive in meetings, practice, and essentially elevate the people around them. And one of the things that I felt so neat about during my time with the Packers is we had a fantastic locker room, meeting room, practice field, and game day group of people to work with. You know, they were just mm-hmm. honest to gosh guys that you enjoyed being around. They enjoyed being together, and it just helps make the whole process more synergistic. And so we really, you know, we had pretty good ideas of what people are going to project. But again, you know, it's an inexact science because, you know, I can remember, and this goes back to my Vikings days now, but I remember with the Vikings, we drafted a guy one time that we thought was going to rule the world as a nose tackle and wound up essentially going to the Pro Bowl as a defensive end. Hmm. So, I mean, that tells you just how much things can change, you know, because all of a sudden <laughs> the guy got slimmer, the guy got quicker, and he became yeah. a great edge rusher. And the and, irony and these are, is we originally these are the brown days. because we thought he'd be a run stuffer. <laughs> You know, so yeah. it's an inexact science, you know. Yeah, and and, and uh, yeah, and, you know, these are the days when the nose tackle was was a three hundred fifty pound guy, and you know they're they're a little bit leaner right. now, but yeah. Um, now, so you know, what, what I'm getting from this is is that uh, it's much more heavily uh, based on the best available player, uh, you know, concept of drafting who's at the top of the board rather than going in and trying to fill specific slots in the roster, positions and need, things like that. Correct. By the end of the day, you know, depth becomes a factor in decisions, all right? Because, Mm -hmm. but I remember, you know, uh, I remember one time we looked at our roster, right? And lo and behold, we were looking at the roster and they were saying, well, does anybody have any ideas, you know, as to, you know, where we might, want to try to find a guy in uh, pro free agency and essentially every guard that was on our roster at the time had three years or less experience in the NFL. And I remember one person in the room suggested, you know, maybe we should try to find a veteran to kind of try to teach these young guys a little bit about the game and so forth. And, uh, you know, the feeling was by our management is no, I don't think we're going to do that because the fastest way for guys to get better is to play. And if we bring in the seven- or eight-year guy and essentially the young guys are going to lean on him, we're going to feel a responsibility to put him on the field, and he's going to delay the development of the younger players. So essentially, believe it or not, we went to camp with uh, four rookie guards and you know a first-year guy and a practice squad guy. But, but anyways... It worked out really well. God, the offensive line coach was pleased with who he had in the room. We wound up starting young guys. We struggled early in the year, you know, for the first two or three games because obviously it's a steep learning curve. But, geez, by game five and game six, these young guys were playing really well. And it was a year that we qualified for the playoffs. So, I mean, we wound up with a pretty decent team besides, you know. So yeah, it definitely like I say, ties in with though, how you're talking about you know, team development too and team building. So I'm sorry, go ahead. Right, but you know, even though the roster may look a little suspect, like I say, there's a lot of things going on. And the other point is, we had a very aggressive management in terms of 
player-for-player veteran trades from time to time, too, because we made a number of – again, because we believed that we could develop talent, we believed we had a coaching staff that had a lot of good teachers on it. We essentially took the leap and would make trades for guys in September and October after a lot of teams would kind of say, okay, this is the roster we're going to set and we're going to kind of develop with that. Uh, You know, every once in a while, I really compliment our pro personnel outfit because they would keep calling and find out if there's anybody that somebody was willing to part with. And, again, if our management felt they could upgrade our team and bring a good person and a good player into the locker room, we'd go ahead and make those deals. And we made a number of September and October deals that, again, you know, by November and December made a very positive addition to our team. And they were cap-friendly because the nice thing is, you know, at that time of year, if a guy is a bubble guy and he's worried about being on his current team the next week and all of a sudden another team is willing to trade for him, you know, what kind of a confidence boost does that give you? You know, these guys believe in me enough that they were willing to give up either another player or a draft choice to bring me here. And, you know, normally those later in the season trades wound up essentially turning out really well for us because it was a great show of confidence in an individual yeah. player. Yeah, I think I think in any aspect of life when you're when you're having a rough time, you know, sometimes a change of venue can just do you a lot of good. A you know, change of venue, right. change of attitude. So ab- absolutely. Now, now talking about positions, um, you know, one thing that's uh, that's talked about a lot nowadays is position value, uh, and in particular with the draft, I think a lot of analysts are, are very critical of teams, uh, specifically with the running back position, probably the most obvious when when those guys are taken uh, highly in the draft. Um, you know, is is position value something that's factored into? you know, original rankings, or is it not something that, that, that was really thought about, or uh, how does that come into play when, when constructing a draft board? Sure. Well, the best answer to that goes back to my Vikings days, because I remember one time, essentially, when I worked for the Minnesota Vikings, our player personnel department believed that there were about five positions on the field where it was capable for a player to take over and dominate a game. And obviously, the most obvious one is quarterback, you know, because mm-hmm. he's touching the ball and doing more with it than anybody else. And, you know, a marquee running back can do it. A pass rusher can do it. Uh, a shutdown secondary man can do it, but only for part of the field. But, you know, so essentially the, the thinking there was we had a special designation for those types of players. And they are type positions because obviously there's some positions where it's almost impossible for a guy to dominate a game, right? I mean, you know, an offensive lineman, while he can lock out somebody, it's going to be rare for him to get two blocks on a play or something where he just totally takes a game over, right? But there are positions where it can occur. And so we had a color coding system where essentially we would code the players capable that were evaluated as capable of dominating the game and we made every effort to acquire them regardless of their position but like I say you're typing into a number of positions you know because not every position can do that on the field but there are some linebackers that are literally unblockable uh you know 
I've seen safeties that nobody could block, you know, that all of a sudden they become a tremendous factor in a running game. Uh, they're great blitzers and that they can still play in coverage. You know, and those guys are really a premium to have because it gives you flexibility to do other things with the other players in the lineup. So, you know, there are positions. Running back is the one that gets beat up the most because of the de-emphasis on the running game and the relatively short careers of players at the position. But I still go back, you know, and a great example I'll use is Shaquan Barkley. I mean, if you have a chance to pick up a guy that you believe from his position can control a game, which on occasions he has done, then go for it, you know, would be my state, is basically bring him into your locker room, get him in your organization, and cut him loose and see what he can do. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we've talked a, a little bit about trades. Uh, we kind of, uh, you, and you mentioned, um, you know, the uh, uh, the trade value chart. Uh, now, you and I have talked a little bit about this in the past, but can, can you talk a little bit about where that came from, uh, how it's sure. used, and, and, you know, what its relevance is today with, uh, with the current C- CBA? Sure. Well, originally – the chart was developed by the Dallas Cowboys. Obviously, Jimmy Johnson really made it famous because, number one, he's the one that essentially leaked it out to other people, which was a good thing to do as well because, essentially, it establishes a value for currency. But the original chart, Mm -hmm. ironically, was developed within the management side of their front office, and it was based on compensation to sign so that hopefully – they were essentially receiving or getting better value coming to the Cowboys than they were giving up and going out. And the whole idea was it became a standard to where you have a norm table now for what the 15th pick in the first round is worth versus the 20th pick versus the 15th pick of the second round all the way through the entire draft order. And, you know, essentially – the fact that it's based on compensation as it existed in the 1990s makes it <laughs> technically an invalid model in uh, 2020, right? Because subsequent studies that deal with actual player performance show essentially the Johnson trade chart overvalues first-round picks and especially picks in the top 15 and undervalues picks that are coming in the third and fourth rounds significantly. And so essentially we had we actually had two charts, right? Because we had the chart that was based on player performance and then we had the original Cowboys chart because for a lot of teams that was the standard they used and that was the expectation. Is well basically if this is the one everybody's used, you know, You've got to make sure that when you're – because, again, it takes two teams to trade. So if the people on the other line, end of the line, mistrust that you're trying to essentially take advantage of them, they're not going to want to do a deal. And the, the Johnson trade chart was a great instrument in that it gave people the confidence to trade. And so, so essentially, essentially, you know, yeah. He, he, Go ahead, he, finish it. By leaking it, he did it. He did himself a favor because, yeah. you know, now people know that they're not getting you know completely worked over by him in, in those deals. Correct. And the amazing thing is, 
roughly two, you know, in the time I was in the NFL. Now, I haven't been in a draft room for four seasons. So basically, it could have changed significantly. But when I was in the NFL, essentially, two out of every three trades almost exactly mirrored the values on the Dallas trade chart and subsequently the Miami trade chart, you know, because people still used it and accepted it, right? And again, you know, it gives you essentially a denominator and a consensus of agreement that, hey, you know, we're not trying to take advantage of you, you know. And again, you know, we had a proprietary chart that the teams that we did a lot of deals with, we actually shared with them so that they could look at it and say, well, even on their own chart, yeah, this is a fair deal, you know. Hmm. And other, believe it or not, other teams sent us their charts so that as the draft is unfolding, we could see their decision-making logic as to what they were proposing and why they were proposing it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And I think it's it's going to be difficult to adjust for, you know, for the – where the chart is off because human nature, I think we're always going to look at the top 15 picks and we're, we're going to naturally uh, elevate those picks because those are the names of the guys we talk about. You know, those are the guys that, uh, um, you know, that, that are, that are making the newspaper after, right after the draft. So, um, well, and you, know, and you in, should, in terms of well, human correction, you're not going to make it. Right. Cause again, we essentially would do a study. We did a series of studies each year that followed player tracking for six seasons. And it was a little bit subjective and biased because we used our own pro personnel grades to determine the level of success that occurred league-wide in the college draft, all right? But essentially what it revealed to us is what premiums those early picks are. Because if you players drafted in selection numbers one through five, all right, essentially at a 40% probability that essentially at some point in their career they're going to be named all pro at some point in their first three seasons they were going to be voted to the first team of a pro bowl roster and so forth and and again i mean basically they were given high enough pro personnel grades that they were capable of dominating a game so if you're drafting in the top five you got a 40 percent probability you're going to take a great player you know and that's one of the things we always used to joke about all right Here's the top five slots. These are the guys who are taking. Which two are going to be the great ones, you know, and unfortunately, which is going to be the guy that you think might underachieve and whatever. There's a whole wide range of variables that determine how it all comes out. But the whole point is, as you go further down in the draft, that probability of finding a great player gets slimmer and slimmer and slimmer, right? Because by the time you get to uh, selection 157, right, which I think falls about, to about round somewhere in round six, you know, you're to the point mm-hmm. where essentially there's only one player that's going to come out of the whole rest of the draft that's going to emerge as being a guy capable of controlling the game. So obviously it gets harder and harder to find. Him. That's uh, that's when the scouting department makes their money, right? <laughs> that's right. And again, I mean, the, the idea is. If you can find some of those guys, you know, as, if you can, because I've always thought the secret to success in the NFL was your ability to locate players either through college free agency or on the final day of the draft. And again, I was very fortunate 
be a part of a draft and develop organization, you know, we were able to find a lot of players. God, our player personnel department, our general managers, you know, Ron Wolf, Mike Sherman, and uh, Ted Thompson, all and now Brian Goodikens, all did an outstanding job of essentially having a great staff, doing a great job with evaluation, and as with the Packers, we were a very aggressive trade team. We traded both up and down, you know, in the order to acquire specific talent that we thought was going to make a difference, both in our locker room and then on the field as well. And it worked and worked well. God, we were in the playoffs. I think we had a run going of about eight consecutive seasons at one point, including Super Bowl forty-five. So now we talked uh, about reasons why a team might trade back when, from there's nobody there that they value to there's a bunch of guys there that they value. Um, you know, I, I know there's teams like uh, uh, New England Patriots have some needs and, and don't have a second-round pick. Uh, the 49ers uh, have a first-round pick and then don't pick again until, uh, I believe, the fifth round. Um, you know, teams that find themselves – uh, due to trades and, and things like that, uh, with a deficit of picks, are they are they more motivated to trade back and, and acquire a, a larger total oh, yeah. number of picks? Correct. You want multiple picks because, again, basically the draft and college free agency is your most economical way to build a roster because the contracts are very easy to negotiate. They're very cap-friendly, and, uh, you know, you've got this young person coming in, who's excited to be there and in many cases has a really good upside. So, I mean, if you get them in the right culture and essentially play within their abilities, gosh, you know, it winds up being a win-win situation. But one of the trade scenarios you neglected to mention when you're going over, you know, trying to acquire multiple picks is, uh, and it's happened. It actually, it doesn't happen often because I can probably count the times on my hands that it occurred during my time in the NFL. But the scenario is a team calls you because you're sitting at the slot where they think they need to take the guy, and they literally, like I say, we, I talked about walking away from one, but they literally offer you the deal of the century in terms of acquiring picks. You know, I mean, they're offering you their first-round pick in a future draft and multiple picks in this year's draft and everything else. And holy smokes, you know, I mean, you look at that thing and you think, well, you know, there isn't any one player that stands out above a bunch of other guys. And with the picks we're going to acquire, you know, maybe acquiring more swings at the bat is going to help us out at this point in time. And so you agree to the deal. And like I say, you know, the other point is, like everything else, because everything comes full circle, right? What did we talk about when we started out? We talked about tendencies and how essentially probability research has always been a part of the NFL. Well, the same thing is true on draft day because our research when I was with the Packers showed that essentially eight teams were a party that was involved in almost 70% of the trades, right? So what you have is you have a quarter of the teams that are very aggressive about moving up and down in the draft order to acquire specific people or to acquire multiple picks. And, uh, you know, the rest of the teams, there were three teams in particular that hardly ever did deals. They just waited for their time to come up on the rotation. And one thing we always got a kick out of is when they came onto the clock, 
they almost always made their pick within like the first minute because they knew who they wanted. They weren't going to trade. And, you know, frankly, of those three teams, two of them won Super Bowls. <laughs> so, I mean, there's more than one way to build a house, you know. Mm. And that's part of the beauty of football is you can develop a culture and a system, and there are multiple roads here that lead to Rome. So, I mean, if there was one way that was so much better than any other way, all 32 teams would be copying that strategy. But the reality is people have made a variety of strategies work and work well. And like I say, you've got teams that essentially the Patriots, for example, are probably involved in more trades, Patriots and Eagles. When I was in the league, we were involved in more trades than any teams in the league. And, you know, you had other teams that you could count the trades they'd made in multiple years, you know, maybe a five-year span on one hand. And yet both were able to experience success. One waited for their turn to come, took the best guy on the board, and they found a way to build a team that won a Super Bowl. Another one essentially worked the board, flipped up, flipped down every direction, you know, and they found a way to win a Super Bowl. So it, as, as we mentioned earlier, it's an inexact science. But anyways, if you want to work a deal, essentially there were seven numbers you wanted on speed dial because get in touch with them first because they were the ones that were most receptive to an idea. So we can we can talk about uh, you know the Ricky Williams deal. The somebody calls you with a ridiculous offer, uh, right. but but at the end of the day, you know I think people mentioned that as a possibility for something that could happen to the Bengals who are. Uh, who are definitely taking Joe Burrow. Uh, but um, at, at the end of the day, it's the Bengals, and uh, people probably know that the Bengals don't move around very much in the draft uh, overall. So, Correct. Uh, but one of the more, a, one of less likely teams to take that deal. But that road is going to take you to the Super Bowl as often as the opposite path. You know, because, sure. you know, the one thing that I would do is, again, you know, I would sit there and I would say, Two of the teams involved in the fewest draft day trades in the NFL, right, have mm-hmm. both won Super Bowls since 2010. So, mm-hmm. you know, on the one hand, you've got the wild traders like the Eagles and the Patriots and so on, and again, they can be very successful. But on the other side of the coin, you've got teams that have built their roster the exact opposite way. You know, they sign a handful of pro-free agents. They wait their turn in the draft and take the best guy available, rarely manipulating the order at all, and they've won Super Bowls. So, you know, the whole point is it's more important as to whom you're bringing in your locker room than your overall strategy of how, you know, you're going to run the draft. Because some people want to have a draft class of 15 guys and other people are content, hey, you know, we're going to settle on our seven picks, and maybe they got a compensatory pick in there, and uh, mm-hmm. or maybe they don't have a compensatory pick because essentially they signed more pro-free agents than essentially left their roster. But the point being, both philosophies have won Super Bowls. So, like I say, you know, you just essentially play the cards you're dealt as well as you can. Yeah, I think too often people get caught up in, well, this is what this team is doing. Well, this is, you know, 
you know, th- we've done this for a couple of years. This isn't working. People try and really shift momentum, shift, you know, decision making with things. But, but yeah, at the end of the day, there's, there's definitely multiple ways to, to get things done. And, um, you know, the, you know, look at, look at how the, this is an extreme example in a, in a football sense, but, you know, look at how the Baltimore Ravens are winning games this year. Uh, I know. <laughs> that's uh, definitely not how other teams were, were winning football games. And, uh, so, I'm absolutely, uh, absolutely with you on that. Now, yeah. when we talk about trade value, um, and is there a bump, you know, a little bit, a little bit of a bump given maybe to, uh, picking first on a given day? Uh, you know, from the yes, standpoint of it, and it doesn't end with first on a given day. Our research okay. showed that there's a premium if you're sitting anywhere in the first five or six slots on a given day. And the reasoning, the rationale behind it, is because people have time to formulate a decision and a strategy. And as, you know, given time to study their own draft board, all of a sudden they start thinking, you know, this person at this slot is a tremendous value. And, you know, let's say that you're picking number 20 in the second round, and there's a player you really like that you think can make a difference. And you know there's no way in the world he's going to make it past selection number four or five. Gosh, a mm. trade-up becomes a tremendously positive strategy. Um, yeah. so, you know, if, yeah, if so, you're like the so, 49ers, where you were talking about where you have a huge gap in the draft, and you're mm-hmm. sitting in the first round, and somebody in two wants to move up, and they're offering you a whole bunch of multiple picks, that becomes a good idea at the time. One of the things that I used to preach all the time as a director of research is when you're making decisions, understand the context of the decision you're trying to make. And in the case of the 49ers, the context is, well, we want to try to acquire more picks so we don't have huge gaps between our selections and we lose players that we really feel could contribute positively to our locker room and our team. And on the other side of the coin, you're sitting there saying, well, geez, we hold 12 picks. There's no way that many guys are going to make our roster or we're going to get them through waivers to put them on our practice squad. All of a sudden it becomes a good contextual decision. Let's bundle some of these picks and move up to the slots where we can acquire players that we have evaluated especially high. So, again, the context becomes a factor that drives the decision. Yeah, um, and, and that makes a ton of sense to me, too, because when you're talking about the uh, the value at certain positions, the likelihood of finding that, that future all-pro, um, you know, when you're after the first round, you only have one pick until, you know, until the fifth. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, you're, you're you're hoping to find one all pro guy, you know, really in that in that draft. You're right. hoping that 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 first round pick hits because you know you know what the numbers look like uh, when you're when you're getting in there at round five. Um, yep. All right. Yeah. So, so you know, yeah, really interesting stuff there. And you know, I know obviously like the Bengals are holding the first overall selection. They're also holding the thirty third. Um, right. And I think one way to look at that is that hey, that's the thirty third pick. You know, contractually it's not, but it's essentially a first round because, uh, you know, w- the way different people's draft boards fall, you, you think there's a, a decent likelihood, even if you only have 20 first round grades, you know, there's a decent likelihood that, that oh, yeah, somebody's sitting there. The draft is, personnel evaluation is highly subjective. 
and it's based on culture, it's based on system, mm. so that a person, you know, essentially from time to time, uh, we would have somebody rated in the first round, and obviously other teams and organizations would find out about it in conversations, kind of jeer and say, oh, gee, I don't think he's nearly that good, you know, and so forth. And uh, mm. conversely, the reverse was true, you know. Uh, one of the things I always got a big kick out of in the draft room is uh, – and Ted Thompson was always very mature, you know, because it was a consensus as we moved forward. And uh, inevitably, we'd be sitting there and we'd be in the first round, and all of a sudden somebody would draft a player that might have been second or third round rated on our board. And as the guy would be pulled off the draft matrix and put under the team that drafted him in their roster, Ted Thompson was always fond of making the remark, I tried to tell you guys that was a good player, but you just don't even listen to me. <laughs> now, I knew he was um, going to get drafted higher, you know. But anyway, <laughs> it was a little draft room humor there. Now, uh, when you hey, get to another, the end of the draft, another sound bite yeah, go ahead. That's, that's good yeah. about the draft room that your uh, listeners probably are unaware of. One of the things that's a really neat thing to alleviate boredom with the scouts and the coaches and the support staff is all of a sudden side bets start to go down as to <laughs> which teams are going to take which guys. And the side bets aren't significant amounts of money. Normally they're a dollar or $5. And uh, it was always neat to watch that action as the draft unfolded because essentially there would be a number of times where all of a sudden the name goes off the board on the matrix and you see scouts and coaches passing dollar bills back and forth to each other, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Uh, I'm I'm, I'm going to change my, uh, my my angle here because this, this seems like a perfect time to bring up this question. Uh, what was that draft room like as you watched Aaron Rodgers fall? Uh, I got to imagine a lot of people were <laughs> – for a while there was probably money going around, and then people probably got – probably got scared of it and, and stopped betting, but uh, what, what was that like uh, watching Aaron Rodgers fall? And I mean, did you, did you know that, you know, that that was the next decade of the franchise falling into your lap? Well, at the time, essentially it was kind of a mixed bag because obviously there was a lot of talk that he was going to be selected first overall. And I think he's even admitted he was a little disappointed when the 49ers took Alex Smith instead of him. And all of a sudden, as the slide started, you know, you kept looking at our slot. And, again, you know, the player personnel staff and the scouts and so forth, they'd worked the phones well. And so they were saying, no, you know, blank isn't going to take him. And they literally would name the guy that they liked and thought they were going to take. And, uh, you know, the slide kept occurring. And when we got about four away, essentially – each of the teams ahead of us were essentially stocked with quarterbacks. So it looked like he was going to make it through unless somebody traded up at the last minute and jumped in ahead of us, which was always a thought. But the excitement just kept building and building and building over and over. And, uh, you know, honestly, his name was so far above everybody else uh, <laughs> that it became one of, you know, I remember in talking to Ted Thompson about it, he said it was one of the two easiest draft day decisions he'd ever made. He actually had a decision that when he was with the Seahawks that he thought was even easier to make. 
because there was one guy so far above everybody else. And, you know, frankly, he's in the pro, he's in the Hall of Fame now, too. But anyways, he said that he, he could fight it. That was the easiest decision he ever made. But drafting Aaron at the slot we got him, he thought was really close because, you know, like I say, there wasn't a name anywhere near that level of ability on the board. And so, you know, there was quite a cheer in the room. I remember everybody was excited. Yeah, that was a uh, that was an un- unbelievable one to 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 see on TV, and, and yeah, obviously the way that, that played out and, and and what he has become in his his career, uh, yeah, that was that was incredible. Uh, <laughs> so um, now you talked about how the draft board is set up um, in terms of of, of draft rankings. Uh, do you do you change? Uh, do you alter how how that's done as you get deeper into the draft? Uh, meaning, does more value go to a player who has a ton of raw talent but maybe needs to develop, maybe it's a triple option quarterback who needs to make a position change or uh, just somebody who just never really got it in college but seems to have everything, you know, all the tools really there. Um, are, are those guys favored over more of the Ham and Eggers who are just kind of limited physically uh, or guys who you project as, you know, potential Long term, you know, potential, you know, multiple special teams roles, guys who might not be, you know, a star on offense or, or defense for you. Matt, that's a fantastic question, and uh, you know, the answer that I'm going to give you is essentially part of a talk that Ted Thompson gave the personnel staff at the beginning of each year, and that is, you know, our goal here is to put together a football team. And in order to do that, you've got to have a harmonious locker room. You know, you've got to essentially have a bunch of guys willing to go out and practice, work through fatigue, work through physical discomfort, and so forth. And, uh, you know, which essentially brings us back to the point that essentially let's primarily base our evaluation on what we've seen in football environments let's not get caught up in the underwear olympics or (laughs) eye-popping physical statistics or all these things let's ask ourselves what did he show on the practice field because obviously our area and national scouts are out watching guys you know and that this is something i think again a lot of the general fan base may be unaware of but essentially they're evaluating practice habits they're evaluating meeting room habits they're evaluating as well as game performance. What is he actually putting on the videotape of the games? And let's make sure that we're making, and, and this is how he always tied it together, but he goes, let's make sure we're making a football-based decision because we're trying to build a football team. We're not putting together a 440 relay team so we want to go out and draft all fast guys, or we're not trying to put together an Olympic weightlifting team or we want to bring in weight room wonders that can bench press 400 pounds and everything else. You know, let's talk about how good of a football player this guy is and how much of a ceiling exists given the context of our team, our competition, and our culture. And I always thought that was a great, you know, that was, that was a great speech. Gosh. You know, Ted Thompson, believe it or not, I think it was a really gifted guy. And I, I don't think he enjoyed getting up and talking in front of groups, but he did a really good job when he spoke 
you know, very passionately and from his heart about things. And I always thought, gosh, what a great tone to set for your entire staff. Yeah, let's make sure we're finding football players and not becoming enamorated by other things that can be a distraction. Now, when you get late in the draft, so, you know, let's say we're looking at a seventh-round pick, you know, maybe even a seventh-round compensatory, so really getting towards the, the very bottom. Uh, you mentioned the importance of undrafted free agents and, and you know, trying to, you know, find those those guys that could stick around uh, and, and having a reputation for that, actually. Um, did you look at, you know, the, the signability of those guys, you know, would you, let's say at Green Bay, let's say you've got a, uh, you know, there's a, there's a linebacker from University of Wisconsin um, and you don't think he's going to get drafted and you're sitting there, maybe he's at the top of your board, but you're like, well, he's, he's from Madison. We'll be able to get him over here. He'll definitely sign with us after. So you, you know, you send the, you send the, you draft the guy from Hawaii instead because you know, you know it's going to be a tough conversation to get him to Green Bay. Uh, you know, does any kind of gamesmanship come into play with that stuff, or is it just nope? Get the best guy, get the guy at the top of the board. The board generally pointed you in the direction, but there were a couple of exceptions, and the exceptions were essentially we would occasionally, and it's rarely, but occasionally pass a guy to essentially draft a player that was going to be more difficult to sign in college free agency. You know, in answer to your question, yes, mm-hmm. it does occur. Okay. Because essentially you believe that if you're on a level field for college free agency, you know, the agent has – because one thing we haven't even touched on is who re- whom represents the player in terms of their agent. Because some mm-hmm. agents are much more preferable to work with than others, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so whom a player chooses to represent him a lot of times helps him – either get drafted by a team or for sure gives him the inside track on college free agency. Because, like, again, it's a human business. And just like you have friends and people you prefer to work with, essentially our negotiators and personnel staff had people within the agent community that they preferred to work with. And, frankly, they had people, whenever possible, they preferred to avoid because their agent was a difficult person to deal with. And I can't say that's endemic to the Packers because it occurred when I was with the Vikings as well. You know, so hmm. essentially that can become a factor because basically it's something you have to acknowledge because I can think of specific situations where it indeed did occur. You know, where we took player X over player Y because we honestly felt we could get player Y in college free agency. And we didn't think we were going to be able to get X. And I agree. That's very commonly done actually as early as the sixth round in some cases. If you talk with people that are football executives and they got really candid about it, you know, where it might almost have to be one of these things, well, now you're speaking off the record. Right? Sure. They, they would probably acknowledge it, but I don't think you're ever going to get anybody at a press conference that's going to, get up and announce it to the world. You know, it's, it's one of those things that exists but is rarely spoken of outside of selected circles. And the other point I might add here is recruiting for college free agents actually begins on the third day of the draft, you know, and sometimes even before. You know, you've got people mm-hmm. calling and saying, you know, and, again, they're not being deceptive. 
we like you as a player. You know, you're currently being considered as a possible, you know, one of three we're looking at in the seventh round or whatever. And, uh, you know, keep us in mind. You know, we really believe you got a great chance to make our roster. This is uh, our situation at your position. And then a lot of times uh, the scout that maybe visited with him in his region will put the position coach on, and he'll make a strong pitch. And from time to time, they'll even put the head coach or the coordinator, the general manager, a chief scout. You know, I mean, think about it. If you're 21 years old and you're sitting, you know, in a college dorm room or at your parents' house or whatever, and all of a sudden, you know, you have five people from the same organization all come on a phone line and tell you how much they would like to have you join their organization. Do you think that's going to make an impression? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it takes you take you right back to re- recruiting. You know, a few years previously, it is recruiting. It's yep, absolutely. recruiting, pure and simple. And again, I mean, uh, both in my time with the Vikings and my time with the Packers, hey, you know, we were talking to agents and we were talking to players long before the draft physically ended about whom exactly we wanted to target in free agency. All right. Well, I, I really appreciate your time uh, uh, talking today. And, and I, I think it's very interesting uh, when we talked about analytics, um, and I did, didn't bring this up at the time, but, uh, you know, I, I, was a, I was a psychology professor on top of being a football coach for eight years. Uh, <laughs> so uh, when you talk about, uh, you know, dependent variables uh, in, in every aspect of the game, you're, you're really speaking my language uh, from that yeah. background. And, 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 I, and I think that that's um, – uh, that's something that gets a little bit overlooked because uh, I, I think a lot of times we we look at analytics and we try and look for universal answers, um, and and there aren't. Uh, there re- there really aren't because you've, you've got a uh, every every single thing that happens on a field um, is 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 changing what the situation is. It, it's but you know, football it's not is a, great because you have a distinct start in the action, which is the snap, and mm-hmm. then a stop in the action which obviously is the whistle. And then essentially that stands as a unit. Now we move to the next situation with the next formation, with the next defensive alignment, with the next defensive secondary contour. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, uh, we had an assistant coach one time that I had a fantastic quote because he was always trying to get players to watch more video. And he goes, if you watch the video, it will tell you the story of the opponent you're playing. And honest to God, if you watch enough video and really become a student of the game, you'll be amazed at how much you can anticipate about what's going to happen next. And I I really believe that's true because human behavior is, as a psychology major, you have to probably agree, it's somewhat predictable. And especially when Mm -hmm. the more critical the situation becomes, the more reliant people become on trying to repeat things that have been successful in the past. So if we can identify that pattern, you know, we can help our players to play more effectively, to play faster, to react quicker. And, you know, Hey, that's what the whole process is about. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the more things you can break down, uh, you know, when you look at, Teams running multiple uh, multiple formations and, and different motions, things like that. It, it's all 
it's all a bunch of movement. It's all a bunch of things to make things look different, but, uh, you know, making things different and breaking them down in different areas, uh, it just creates more opportunities for tendencies. With you 100% on that. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you joining me. Great conversation. Uh, thank you, everybody, for, for uh, tuning in today. If you go over to the Orange and Black Insider YouTube page, uh, this is not appearing on the on the download uh, this week, but uh, on the YouTube page, uh, I have broken down Patrick Queen and Kenneth Murray, uh, you know, two linebacker pro- prospects coming up in uh, this year's draft. Possibilities for the Bengals at 33 if they make it that far, uh, and I specifically broke them down in terms of how they would fit into the Bengals system. Uh, with what uh, Coach Lou Anarumo was doing last year defensively uh, with the linebackers. So definitely uh, check out the Orange and Black Insider YouTube page uh, and and that video uh, for information on the linebackers. But, uh, again, thank you to my guest, uh, Mike Ayers, uh, from formerly of the, uh, of the Green Bay Packers. And uh, keep tuning back here every week throughout the offseason, and we will be continuing to have – draft coverage, and uh, soon-to-come free agency uh, coverage as we, uh, as we get deeper and deeper into the offseason. Go Bengals. Yeah, we're coming for a